All right. Well, welcome everyone. Good to see you guys. We're uh, continuing on, obviously, in our study of Proverbs, and uh, we come today to the sixth chapter of Proverbs, and I want to take a little bit of a... I've done this before in the past in different uh, ways and different uh, type and different uh, approaches, but I want to today kind of take what I would maybe call a bit of an observational survey of this passage and primarily the first 19 verses of Proverbs chapter 6. Um, when you think about the sort of the practice or the discipline of Bible study, um, really it does begin with exposing yourself to the actual text of Scripture, to looking at what it says and, and, and just making observations about what's before you before you even begin to think about what it actually means and think about the context and think about you know, the, the principles of sort of interpreting it and then going beyond that to actually um, thinking through application, personal application for spiritual growth and continued faithfulness uh, in the truth. So that first step of just sort of looking at and seeing what's there and then beginning to have it form in our minds um, some direction and some clarity around this passage because for a couple of reasons, this, this chapter is structured a little bit uh, uniquely than, than some prior chapters. Um, it's a, it, you begin to see uh, almost um, um, different episodes or different uh, um, categories of wisdom or insight being just sort of put out there. And, and you know, it's, it's easier for us, I think, to when we're thinking about uh, interpreting Scripture, understanding Scripture... Um, or even just the general process of reading and understanding a text, it's often easier for us or more seamless for us when there's sort of a, a flow, uh, or sort of more of a narrative flow or a thematic flow. And I think that the way that this particular passage is structured, and it's not uncommon, obviously, when you work through Proverbs to see this, but it, you have to kind of look a little more deeply for some of the consistent thematic um, emphases in this section, um, but also it has isolated principles that sort of stand on their own and may not necessarily need to be overly connected to the one that comes before. So just kind of thinking about that, I thought it would be helpful for us to just sort of think about and try to look at the passage and try to draw our attention to what might be some consistent threads that run through it, uh, some, some sort of consistent or predominant concepts or or themes or ideas that seem to be running through it um, in each different sort of episode or different sort of um, section that you see here when you see the text um, unfold, or or some, some maybe some of the central character issues that are being really addressed. Um, and I think that as we kind of get into it, um, we, we will be able to see some of these central themes, and really one in particular that I think is at the core of it, um, a major, major point that's being addressed here as is being addressed really all throughout Proverbs and really all throughout Scripture in general. But, but that's what I want us to kind of approach I want us to take. So as we read through this section, we're going to read through the first 19 verses. And then the second part of this chapter really picks back up this idea of, of infidelity, um, of adultery, of, of the, the forbidden woman, if you will, that we looked at last time in chapter 5. And so we'll talk about that as, a, as another matter and kind of elucidate some more points with that. But we've already covered quite a bit of ground there. And that theme kind of recurs as well throughout Proverbs. But let's just read together the first 19 cha- verses of chapter 6. And again, be thinking observationally. Be trying to notice 
Anything that you think, think is sort of a recurring principle or a recurring admonition or a recurring sort of character issue that's being sort of put in focus in these different uh, sections. So starting in verse 1, he says, My son, if you've put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly, In a moment he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. So when you read through that, you can see that it's seems a little disjointed maybe, or it doesn't, it doesn't flow like narrative might flow, or like even like uh, uh, preceptive principles that might flow out of the Apostle Paul's letters. It certainly doesn't flow like that. I mean, you, you jump from this instruction about security and pledge to a stranger or a neighbor, to the sluggard, to a worthless person, to six things, no seven things that the Lord actually hates. So it's kind of it seems could be seen as a little bit disjointed, but I, I, I'm wondering if you guys, as we kind of read through that, if you could see some, some consistency there, some consistent principles or points of admonition or character instruction that might be found in all of these different sort of areas of this passage. Anybody, anything come to mind for any of you? Okay, so maybe just this general lack of integrity, lack of lack of consistency of character. What else? I think it has to do with um, not putting yourself in the place of being um, subject to somebody else other than God. Okay. Okay. That's what if you're in charity with somebody else, you are basically your finances are controlled by another person, and if you're not taking care of your needs, you'll you'll fall into the same trap. Okay. The same as the others. Good. Yeah. It's there. Yes. Um, going to the ant, sluggard, the sleep. Um, let's see. Do 
not sleep to thine eyes, and then a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and then go to the ant and look at what the ant does, and otherwise you bring ruin upon yourself. Yeah. Okay. What else? Anything else come to mind? Yes. <clears throat> Yeah, and certainly that's a major sort of overarching theme or point of emphasis for this whole section of chapters 1 through 9 because it is fatherly instruction is the, is the overarching um, approach or, or, or focus of this. Overall, you just get a picture of a prudent, hardworking person. He doesn't get financially entangled. Uh, he works hard, takes care of himself, and he does what he's supposed to do. Okay. Okay. Ten commandments don't flow so well either. Right. Yeah, this certainly is a as a, a, a broad sweep of character instruction, of character caution, of redirection in a, a, all, all of just normal life of the, 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 the ebb and flow of normal life and here's Here's what you don't do. Here's what you need to be watchful for. Well, <clears throat> I think all these are obviously good, and I, I think that the, the discipline of just observation, thinking observationally through a passage, particularly a passage like this, where um, it's not always, like you said, you know, it's not always straightforward and clear what might the broad sweep of the theme or the ideas might be. And sometimes they're, they're not. Sometimes they're intended to be this and this and this and this and this. Um, but I, I, as I read through this, and I, as I sort of read through it, obviously, quite a bit, over and over again, looking at it, what I saw um, was what, I, what I've categorized, and of course, I have the benefit of working ahead of you guys. I always say this, but you know, like I've got a whole outline here, and you don't have that benefit to put that together when I ask these questions. But what I, what I've, what I've, what I see here is what I've characterized, or what I've sort of entitled, profiles of foolish pride. You see these different profiles of foolish pride. Or maybe you could say these are different manifestations of what I think at the core is, are, is, is a level of pride. Different manifestations of it. So we've talked about this before, um, but pride can be behind a lot of different activities, a lot of different decisions, a lot of different ways of thinking. Pride really is at the root of everything that we do that is not pleasing to the Lord. But I think that this is an interesting look at some different profiles of it, some different ways that this could manifest itself. And it's also interesting to note that in, in, in similar fashion where we saw before these, these sort of a breakdown of, of folly into different um, profiles itself, you have the simple you know, or the, the naive, the, and oftentimes associated with those who are young, though not necessarily so. You have the fool who is just um, um, unthoughtful 
in their approach to life, and they fall into snares and into uh, ultimately can lead to sin. And then you have the actual wicked person. You have the, the one who is, who is overtly planning and plotting evil and wickedness. That's also folly. That's also foolishness. That's also the antithesis of wisdom. We have a similar um, progression in these profiles in this passage. And, and, and I think that it, it, it lends itself to kind of thinking in those terms when you look at it. So when we think about this, if we, if we think about it, if you'll just kind of indulge me and follow my outline that I've come up with, but the, the, you can outline this in a lot of different ways, just think about this as profiles of pride. Yeah, we see, like, verse 17, where you read down there and say, well, hey, I might have a proud look, but I don't think anybody in this room has tried to shed someone's blood. No, right. I don't do that, but we have pride. Yeah, that's right. And then you go further down, uh, wicked imaginations. You know, we have to be honest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, the category is like, oh, I don't do those things, but certain things. Yeah. Yeah. And to God, it's all sin. I, I see four categories. I see four sort of profiles here. Um, and again, the, the, the fourth one is, we didn't read the, the section, it's the last one that we'll talk about in, in lesser detail probably next time. The last two we'll probably deal with ne- uh, next time. But the fourth one has to do with this, this issue of illicit engagement, this illicit relationships, and the pride that can be behind that. And we'll look at some of the verses in there that really put that on, on full display. But the four sort of profiles that I want us to kind of use as a way to frame all this, this section up with is the first one is the impulsive pride of imprudent financial dealings. The impulsive pride of imprudent financial dealings. And that's verses 1 to 5. Let's look at that real quick. It does deal with, obviously, a financial transaction of sorts. The, 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 care, the, um, the context is a financial arrangement that is in view here. And it does talk about, or it is uh, speaking about, this idea or this issue of surety, uh, which in verse 1 it says, put up security for your neighbor, or given a pledge for a stranger. It's the idea of surety. Well, surety is really a formal engagement, uh, actually um, a dictionary definition, which by the way is congruent with uh, the biblical ideas of it as well. A formal engagement, such as a pledge, given for the fulfillment of an undertaking, a guarantee, a basis of confidence or security, one who has become legally liable for the debt, default, or failure in duty of another. Probably the most, um, the most clear uh, example in our context would be like a cosigner, a cosigner on a debt obligation. And what the, the instruction here is, is that, you know, it's, it's really a, a warning to the son if you have put security. So the assumption is this has already happened. It's, there's, there's sort of an implication here that this, this could already be something that would happen. In other words, there's that subtlety, that, that being lured into something like this. It's not necessarily obvious. And the idea here is that you're talking about someone who sort of in their naivete and in their impulsivity... They pursue this kind of transaction. Now, I use those terms, but looking back at the text, why do you think I use the term impulsive pride here from the text to describe the scenario? Why impulsive pride? What do you see here that might give me those kind, that kind of 
terminology to describe this profile. There is that, yes. That's right. And what does that indicate? You, you've been you jumped before you you looked before you leapt before you look. I mean, it just it's the idea of it's it gives it even talks about the idea of of animals being hunted and trapped. That's that's the the imagery that you have here. It's it it's that action was taken, decisions were made, and they were made rashly. They were made impulsively. And and they were made in such a way that they were they had to be motivated by something to to take that kind of step because this is a major major decision to pledge yourself, which is what this means. It's someone who's pledging their self, their good name, their creditworthiness on behalf of another's indebtedness. It's a complete putting yourself out there financially for someone else. And to do that rashly, you you have to wonder what might motivate that kind of action. And the idea here is that it's definitely impulsive. It, it, it also, if you think about the way that we sometimes operate, particularly in various social settings, um, I think that if we're honest with ourselves, we like to look good before other people. We like to be impressive to other people. We, I mean, I understand that we are called to die to ourselves, to take up our cross. I understand that humility is a consummate virtue in the Christian faith, but if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, we really do have a natural and even potentially diabolical, if unchecked and unrepented of, tendency toward wanting to put forward an image to other people that is very positive. We want people to think well of us and even to possibly admire us and esteem us very highly. And so if, we, if we're motivated by that to an excessive degree... Not the motivation of just being a good witness and a good testimony. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about having a cavalier attitude saying, I don't really don't care what anybody thinks of me. I'm talking about the more sinister, more fleshly kind of motivation that says, I will, I will do things and I will say things, maybe even impulsive or rash things, if the calculus in my mind that works out really, really quickly is this will make me look good to others. So think of it this way. Think of a, a situation where someone uh, is, is having trouble getting something uh, because they don't have the right level of credibility to get what they want from someone else. And you could put it into the category of getting a loan if you want to take the financial transaction idea literally here in, in, in our thought process. And, and you want to step in and say, I got it. I, I got their back. I got it covered. There's an element there where it's like, if it's not someone who is a close, close relation, which this is another indicator here of the rashness of it, the persons involved are not, it it says friend and, it says neighbor and stranger. This is who you're putting up surety for. This is the person that you're saying, I got their back. I'll put myself on the line to cover that debt. There's an element there of hubris to say, I've got it covered, when in fact, truth be known, you don't have it covered. You don't want to have it covered. What you want 
is some kind of recognition or credibility for being willing to say you got it covered. Maybe it's that you want people to think, we want people to think that we have more means than we have, or maybe we just want them to think that, you know what, I'm a generous, compassionate person, and this person who can't really get this loan on their own, I'm willing to help out. Whatever the case may be, there's a, there's a level of pride there. There's a level of hubris there that's driving this rash kind of decision-making. Would you put some of the corporate philanthropy in that same category where they're giving large sums of money because it makes them look good and they think they might improve their business? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I know that's a fact for a lot of businesses. Um, a, lot of, a lot of people are motivated by that, but businesses for sure. I mean, there's marketing uh, elements to that that are they're trying to establish good reputation and goodwill with their, their customers and potential customers and, and all that, so for basically, sure. Basically, we're just kind of a, a, you know, down the ladder a lot of rungs, but basically it's the same concept. Same kind of idea. It's motivated by some kind of self-serving pride, some kind of what I'm going to get from it. And it could go further than that, too. Uh, well, the other, another indication that you're dealing with pride as a core issue here is that the medicine that's given, the exhortation that's given in verse 3 is, then do this. If, if you have done this, if you have given surety, made a pledge, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. This is a description of humiliating groveling. That's what this is a description of. In the context that we're talking about, to have to do this would be a humiliating endeavor. So basically he's saying, humble yourself. Take your medicine. Go and appeal and plead. Do it now. Hasten it. It's urgent. And do not sleep or slumber. Go take care of this now. There's an element here where it's like, you know what? You pridefully got yourself into a situation So don't allow pride to keep you in that situation. Humble yourself. Grovel if you have to. Plead. Beg to be released from this obligation. Clearly, we're talking about a certain level of pride. And I I call it impulsive pride of imprudent financial dealings. Again, the imprudence here is characterized by verse 1. You're talking about a neighbor or stranger that you're giving surety for. You're not talking about your brother or your son or your daughter, a close family relation, that you might do that on their behalf, knowing that, you know what, I'm willing to, I'm willing to cover this because they're, they're my family and I'll, I'll take care of it if I need to. Different, there are different motivations in play there. With this, you're talking about a neighbor or a stranger. Some commentators would argue that this is one and the same person, and some would argue this, this, this is two different people, I didn't really get to a place where I, I came to any huge conclusion other than the fact that both, both concepts of neighbor and stranger refer to their generic concepts that refer to someone you just don't know well. You either don't know well at all, or they're an outsider. They're a complete outsider to your community. And so the idea is that you're giving yourself as a pledge for someone that you don't even know that well. And you're giving a pledge to cover their potential inability to pay a debt that they're taking on. Now, the practical pitfalls here, I think, are pretty obvious, right? Um, I mean, there are reasons why a debtor would need a cosigner, right? So if you just think about that, a debtor who needs a cosigner, why, why do they need a cosigner? 
I mean, if you're not stopping to ask those questions, not necessarily a wise move. There's just practical, practical things here. Why would they need a more creditworthy person to sign off on them, to sign off on their debt? So there's practical elements here that I think are pretty obvious. I mean, to take it a step further, you can just look statistically in our day and time. Nearly 40% of co-signers found themselves on the hook for at least part of the bill, according to a June 6, 2016 survey from creditcards.com. And 28% saw a drop in their credit score for, from the primary borrower's bad credit habits. So, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that there, there's a high-risk scenario that you're considering here, very high-risk scenario, and that's, uh, that should be obvious on the face of it. But there could be, as Mr. Stang uh, alluded to, there could be some prideful motivations of greed here, too. Because the idea here is that if this is a friend or a stranger, another, excuse me, a neighbor or a stranger, in other words, someone that you don't know well, not a family member that you're really genuinely trying to help and you're willing to go the distance with them and even pay off the debt if you have to because you know that motivation is to help them. Um, so it's a, there's a level of there's a there's an element of benevolence and genuine generosity behind that kind of action, but this is very different. And the, the implication here could be that there's prideful motivations of greed. In other words, I've got something to gain from this financially, and I don't have to do anything other than just put my name on the line. There's no financial skin in the game for me on the front end. I'm not having to put up some sum of money myself. I'm just having to put my name on the line and give surety, which is a huge risk, but nevertheless, it's not, there's no actual tangible skin in the game for me financially, and yet I'm looking for some kind of quid pro quo or payback or return. So there's an element of speculative risk here, excessively speculative risk here. So that lends itself to the idea of it being a sort of a, um, a presumptuous or impulsive, imprudent Kind of pride. It's like two things. You know, here's his father telling his son, "Don't, don't do this." Well, it, it, it almost lends to the fact, lends itself to think, okay, this son, without getting any wisdom from anyone who's lived before him, who's actually done this before, went ahead and did it. And didn't even offer, didn't even look to see if there's wisdom in this. So it kind of shows that this son is doing this would be just a foolish thing to do in the first place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. Yeah. But um, the other thing is where um, what you're saying about um, the person who is getting the loan, you know, they don't. It's not their reputation that's on the line. That's right. It's this guy's, which kind of lends itself into the part about, you know, the next three things, the next three paragraphs have to do with the character of people. Mm -hmm. Whereas here's someone who's lazy. Well, okay, this guy who apparently needs this loan may not have worked hard enough to do it himself. You know, and not only that, but this guy... It points out in verses 12 and 15 that this person might be that wicked person who, you know, to the world has one appearance Mm -hmm. but actually within themselves is actually continually thinking about how can I get, you know, evil things. That's right. And then, of course, the other part is is a heart that devises wicked plans. So all these three things that come right after that are talking about people you really don't want to loan money to. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And just and, and the idea that you would make a decision based upon that potential. I mean, any one of those kinds of profiles and, and not know that and you're putting yourself and your name and your reputation on the line. Certainly it's foolishness. We, we know that on the face of it. But you have to ask the question, why would someone make that decision? Why? What motivates us to do those kinds of things? And generally, I think it's safe to say that we're dealing with pride, not only because I think that that's common to man in our motivations oftentimes, but from the text itself, there, the repentance exhortation is humble yourself. You've been caught in a snare. You were impulsive and you were foolish and you were prideful and you didn't look ahead, so humble yourself. So the, the, the principle here is don't allow your pride to suck you in to imprudent speculative financial engagements because they are typically just a trap. They end up being a trap. That's typically the axiomatic wisdom principle that you can kind of count on. And if you have done so, humble yourself and immediately pursue an exit plan. This is very straightforward. Don't, don't allow your pride, in other words, to keep you from doing what you need to do to extract yourself from this arrangement. Again, it's an instruction, an injunction against pride that would either compel you to step into this arrangement or pride that would constrain you from trying to get out of the arrangement. In either case, it's just pride, foolish pride. We have this other profile that we see here, the, pro, the presumptuous pride of laziness and procrastination. Verses 6 to 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Now, why would I label this, this laziness that we see here, this sluggard, as a form of presumptuous pride? Why do I call it presumptuous pride? Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's this idea that this is going to get worked out somehow. Someone's going to come through. Somehow it's going to work out. There's just a level of presumption that's clearly uh, at play here and implied here. Yeah, I mean, some, there's, 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 somebody's going to, there's a safety net somewhere I can count on. But even before you even go that far, right on the face of it in verse 6, there is this humiliating counsel to learn from one of the most insignificant and smallest creatures on the planet. So there's this idea that, you know what, you need to learn wisdom, not from a, a wise, reputable sage. You need to go to this tiny little creature and learn from them. That's where you are right now. You are so blinded by your, your sloth. You're so debilitated by your sloth. You need to look at this tiniest of creatures that can be squashed with a foot. That's where your learning needs to come from. And, and there's this stark contrast that we're given. Obviously, we see the industriousness of an ant being put on display to contrast with the sluggard's behavior. The sluggard is counting on provisions without planning or work. Just the opposite of the ant. What does he say about this ant? She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. 
And all that without being overly directed, guided, being told what to do. So you, you have this, this profile of slothfulness or laziness that is not just characterized by someone's unwillingness to do what's necessary, to do what needs to be done, or to work hard, to put your hands to the plow and, and get after it. But it's also this idea of sloth or laziness can be characterized by the person who is constantly waiting for someone to tell them what they need to do. In other words, the injunction is against being totally passive about work and enterprise and engagement of your life in your hands to what is called for what, to what you're called to do and what is before you. The ant is given credit not just for working hard and planning ahead, but also for taking initiative without being overly directed to do so, without waiting for someone to say, okay, you need to do this, and when you get done with that, then you need to do that. So the sluggard is someone that may even do something when they're told to do it, and then when they're done doing that, they just kind of stand there and wait for someone to tell them what else to do. Well, yes. However, in this this metaphor is not talking about that, though. But, uh, uh, the, the basic underlying is do what God. That yes, absolutely, absolutely. There is the implication here that we are called by God to be those who are diligent and work hard. We're called to work. Work is a blessing. We see that in the Garden of Eden, actually, being a, a blessing and a, and a privilege and actually a call and a mandate. But certainly you see here this laziness is really oriented toward presumption. And you see the ant as this humiliating way of, of, of pointing that out to say, look, you need to get your instruction from an ant. This is in stark contrast, obviously, to the sluggard the ant is. And you notice there that the sluggard, it, the, the, the Solomon is sort of quoting the, the terms or the... the sort of the refrain of the lazy person, the sluggard. Just a little sleep, just a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Just, I need to rest a little bit longer. You know, I just need a little more rest. That's, that's sort of a, a quotation of the attitude or the mindset of the lazy person. Not now. I just, I need a little more rest. Now's not the time. So it's this idea also of procrastination, of putting off things, of not taking care of responsibilities. What does the New Testament talk about those who are unwilling to work? They should not eat. They should not eat, and a person who doesn't care for their own household is worse than an unbeliever? I mean, so the injunction here is substantially condemning when you take it into the New Testament as well. What's that? suffering the consequences. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the commentaries that I read said this about this, this quote, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. He, he says of the sluggard, he does not commit himself to a refusal. So the sluggard's not saying, hey, I'm not going to do any work, necessarily. He does not commit himself to a refusal, but deceives himself by the smallness of his surrenders. So, by inches and minutes, his opportunity slips away. So the idea here is that 
This presumptuous pride deceives, convinces the sluggard that there's going to be time. There's going to be opportunity in the future. A little more sleep, a little more slumber. I'll get it done. It'll work out. It's total presumption, total pride that somehow you have control of the future, that somehow this is going to work out to your benefit and in your favor. It's just totally consuming, a subtle consuming kind of pride. The sluggard doesn't want to work, and yet the sluggard still has desires and cravings for things that only honest work can provide. So it's not that the sluggard just wants to kind of hang out and do nothing and get nothing. No, no, no. The sluggard, again, to put this pride on full display, the sluggard wants to not do work when it's time to work, and yet still craves and desires the things that only work should provide. Roberts, another commentator, says it this way, The lazy are generally not those who have few desires. Rather, their daydreaming leads to exaggerated desires, and exaggerated desires to a despair of realization. Proverbs 13.4 says, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. And then Proverbs 21, 25 through 26. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. So that is not just a profile in laziness. It's not just putting on display, listen, laziness and sloth is a bad thing, and it's unwise to be lazy and slothful. Because, you know, the, the obvious consequence here is, is pointed out to us. He says, And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So all of us, we can do that math, right? Pretty simple. If I'm lazy and I don't take care of business and I don't do work and I don't work hard, I'm not going to be able to pay my bills. I mean, that's pretty straightforward, you know, economics 101. Um, for us in a grown-up world. We know this clearly. But it goes further than that. It's characterizing this sluggard, this slothful person, not just as someone who doesn't want to work, but as someone who wants and craves and, and envisions a life for themselves that is to come apart from work. That is pride on full display. That is a sense of deep-rooted entitlement to something without the work to earn it. That's why I say these are profiles in pride as much as anything else. They're, they're exemplified and manifested in these different scenarios, but you can get at the pride with a little bit of thought and looking in the text. Well, the next two that we're going to talk about next time is the malicious pride of deception and discord in verses 12 to 19, and then the destructive pride of illicit relationships and infidelity that you see in verses 20 to 35. Let's just look quickly at the concluding passages and touch on it for just a little bit before we we wrap up. He transitions from this profile of the sluggard and this presumptuous pride of laziness 
to what he calls in verse 12 a worthless person or a wicked man. And as I said, the progression of these, of these persons, it gets progressively more wicked in its orientation, more diabolical, more devious, more deceptive in its orientation. It goes from the, the sort of naive, impetuous, sort of rash type of folly and pride that gets you into a situation, into a snare of a financial type, to the person who is trapped in this idea of thinking they deserve something for nothing, the sluggard, the characterization of the sluggard, to now we're talking full-on worthless person and wicked man. That's the characterization now. And it says, a worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger. And isn't that interesting? Brings in the actual physical mannerisms of this person. And these mannerisms are oriented toward prideful deception and influence over others. Winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger. But what's going on there? Verse 14. With perverted heart devises evil. So you could just, just think about how Satan himself is characterized. He's an angel of light, right? He presents himself as an angel of light. But he's the father of lies. And when he lies, he's speaking his native language. So the sunshine and lollipops on the front end, behind that is a perverted heart that devises evil and is continually sowing discord. So the picture that you're getting here is of someone who on the front end has a whole physical disposition to lure people in, to influence people. But what's really going on is a devising of evil and ultimately a motivation of sowing discord. So this is, a, this is a consummate diabolical level of pride. That's why I, I call it a malicious form of pride. It's a malicious pride of deception and discord that's on display here in this section. It goes so far as to talk about this, kind of bringing it to a conclusion. You'll see there um, in verse 14, it's a perverted heart that devises evil, continually sowing discord. And then look at the last thing that in this list of six things that the Lord hates and seven that are an abomination to him, starting in verse 16. The last thing in verse 19, a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among his brothers. So you have this characterization of someone whose whose pride is oriented toward maliciousness and deception and influence that would ultimately result in discord and disharmony and building factions for their own advantage, for their own benefit. Well, we're going to talk more about that next time. I really want to dive into this because the more I think about this, the more challenging it is to really wrestle with how this profile and pride manifests itself in our lives and maybe how we can find ourselves, you know, kind of, mimicking some of these behaviors, even as believers. 
And that therein lies the caution and the challenge to us. Is it not indeed true that not only are we saved, but we are what? Being saved, right? And we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling. We are in the process of being sanctified. Well, what does that mean? It means that the characters, the, the, the character attributes, the behaviors, the thought processes of corrupt fallen man still reside in our mortal bodies and are waging war, right? That's what's going on. So, at any given point in time, we could find ourselves lulled into these kinds of pride. Now, if we're characterized by these profiles in pride as a general rule and a trajectory of life, then go back to square one and make sure that you are truly a believer. I mean, the trajectory of your life should not be characterized that way. However, we can be lulled into behaviors and thinking and patterns of speech and communication and interaction with other people.